0: Welcome to the Del Wamsley Radio Show. <laughs>
1: Welcome to the Dell Wamsley Radio Show, where the hype ends and help begins. Our number here is 866-945-6565. And uh, the flowing lines are open if you'd like to get in. Today I want to start with uh, the fact that I just got out of a two-day workshop. And to me, it's one of the greatest things that it happens in my life, is to be able to go into a room full of people that when they walked in the room, they were there filled with skepticism but at the same time filled with hope that there's actually something in their life that could change, that they could come up with a solution to a problem that they've had as a lifelong problem. And that is, how do I retire in a world with a system that no longer works or never did in the past because there are no longer pensions? There's no longer any way for someone to support themselves other than to continue to work. And in this day and age right now where people have been told that you're going to have to work longer and longer and longer and put off retirement uh, to a later and later part of your life, uh, a lot of people are sitting there and going, you know, look, I don't have the energy to work anymore. A lot of people are going, I don't even want to work that long. You know, I have people that come in anywhere from 30 years of age. Uh, you know, we do have a few younger ones, but mostly 30 years of age up to about 60 years of age. And you got people in their 30s that want to retire now because they're already tired of working their whole life. You got people in their 40s who are sitting there going, man, I am really burnt out. I've got a midlife crisis going on mentally. But uh, the the bottom line is, is that uh, we, we see no way that we're ever going to be able to retire, right? It just isn't going to happen. And and then people in their 50s, they're frantic. They're sitting there going like, look, they say I have to have 10 times my annual income saved up to be able to retire. And I've got one times my annual income, if that even saved up. And what am I going to do? And, you know, then you got your people in your 60s. They're just like, man, it's over with. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm probably going to have to keep working. I can't see anything else to do, but it's hard to get a job now. And you know, and the point I'm making to you is you've got all these people that are struggling wanting something to happen, but it's a problem that does not exist in our society. So it can't be solved in our society. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, if you go to financial planners, these guys, they are talking to you about how can you make some financial moves and adjustments so that 40 years from now, or by the time you're 65 years old, you'll be able to survive. Now that is their problem. And they have their solutions to solve their problem. But as Einstein says, you can't solve the problem at the same level of thinking that the problem was created at. It's how you see the problem is the problem. And these financial planners just don't have a clue that people are not trying to figure out how to work until they're 65, or now as long as age 70. That the average person had always been intended to retire by age 50, 55 at the latest, right? And in fact, even if you look at the, the way the IRS set the system up, originally, you know, you could actually start taking your retirement at age 55. You could set it up on some type of a long-term extraction program. But now, everybody out there saying you could have to work until age 70. In fact, there are seminars out there, people, seminars, that talk about how to get more out of your Social Security by working to, and, and not starting Social Security, to, to start to, take Social Security until you're 70 to 75 years old. Well, folks, I don't even think I'm going to live to 70, 75 years old. I have no idea, but I don't think so. The average male in my family died before 65 years of age. And so the Social Security system is a complete ripoff to my family and probably to many, many other families. And yet now they're telling you, don't even take Social Security... At 59 and a half. Don't take it at 60. Don't take it at 62. Which was like the end-all be-all when I was a kid. Don't take it at 65. No. You need to hold out to age 70. Or 75. Right? Now you can understand and appreciate the frustration these people in this two-day seminar are going through. And where they're at when they walk in the door. And they're hoping. Praying that they're gonna get an answer to their problem. The real problem, not the one the financial planners have set out for them to believe in, but the real problem. I'm old, I'm tired, I'm worn out, I don't have enough money to retire, and I don't see how I'm gonna get there. And then, it happens. Right before their eyes, they start to see things. Information, stimulation, inspiration, things that are like turning on the light in a dark room and for the first time ever in their life, being able to visually see a path that goes where they want to go. As the end of the second or as the end of the first day occurs, in fact, let's go to lunch. By the lunch, the first day, people are sitting there at lunch, bubbling and excited and talking and, 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 and just purely motivated. Wanting to know What's coming next? By the end of the first day, people almost look relieved. It's almost like, wow. They see it now. It's going to happen. But the second day, my friends, the second day of that two-day workshop, where we talk about how to go out there and double your money and double it again and double it again, how to make millions of dollars instead of just hundreds of dollars. That's when these people really come alive. And husbands and wives who walked into the room on Saturday morning that were skeptical fighting amongst each other as to whether or not the ideas really made sense. You know, you've always got the positive person saying, there's got to be a way, honey. And you've got the skeptical person saying, no way, honey, it ain't going to happen. But by the end of the two days, those two have made up and found common ground for them to exist on, to plan their lives by, and to be able to get to this common ground future of an incredible lifestyle. And my friends... To see that in their eyes is why I do this. It's such a wonderful component to watch happen right before your eyes. And many of these people, they come up afterwards, they give me hugs, some of them cry, and we're not trying to elicit those types of responses, don't get me wrong. It's just that it's like a thousand pound burden has come off their back. And every one of them, because I talk to each and every person that signs up, I send out uh, surveys and I spend time talking to them. Each and every person that, you know, I speak to, it's like a thousand pound boulder has been taken off their back. And what they believe before they came in has been shattered. I got to ask a question the other day in an email that I didn't have the answer to. And so I had to go get some help from an economist. The question was, how is the fact that the dollar is strengthening against foreign foreign currencies, uh, how is that going to affect us in real estate? And I really couldn't answer that question because I'm not a currency expert at all, and never even followed them to be honest with you. Didn't make a lot of sense to me. So I went and I got a hold of our economist uh, here, the, uh, Dr. Dotsauer, which. The question was how does this uh, affect us and it goes on and dotsar goes the almighty dollar is showing the world who is boss the dollar has strengthened against uh, most foreign currencies in the past year the strong dollar is a reflection of better economic conditions and confidence in the US versus the rest of the world the dollar now carries a bigger purchasing power and is not necessary but that is not necessarily a positive thing Numerically, on average, the U.S. dollar has strengthened by 11% in the past month to uh, be favored by more uh, and more and more over the past few years. Uh, Against uh, against some currencies, the gains have been even more dramatic and is up as much as 25% compared against recent years against the Canadian counterpart, and up 17% against the Japanese yen, and up more than a hundred percent against the Russian ruble. In uh, this gain means American travel abroad will see bargains everywhere, and the extra—I uh, can't even see what it says pounding the country for Americans staying at home. Many of the foreign-made products at Walmart, for example, will be cheaper. All right. So he's saying here: Look, the the stronger dollar is going to mean we're going to be able to get a lot more purchasing power around the world and for products that can be shipped across the ocean that are made very cheaply over there, and our dollar will buy more of those products right now. But then he goes on and says, the strong dollar, unfortunately, will not translate into lower housing costs. Why? Land cannot be shipped across the ocean, and construction workers demand dollar compensation. In other words, they demand to be paid in U.S. dollars. This is why rents are rising at 3.4% and essentially a seven-year high, and home prices are appreciating at more than 5% a year. The Federal Reserve will raise interest rates somehow this year. The date of interest rate hike is likely to further away because of the strong dollar, because the strong dollar has uh, reduced the possibility of inflation, all right? And so it goes on and says, the U.S. dollar's unrivaled global reserve currency the British, about 100 years ago, had the status where the British pound could command $5 uh, of anybody else's money. In the long-distance past, Venice held the global currency when its economy flourished. The importance of a global reserve currency was noted by play merchants of Venice. It would have be, been very easy for the short-term gain to simply default on all the money and leave everyone out in the cold. Well. That's too much political stuff for me to get anything out of this. Here's the answer. It's not going to affect our real estate investing in any significant way, and it may even keep interest rates down for a longer period of time, which would be beneficial for us. All right? The next article someone sent me was this. It says, Mark Cuban, this is just the start of all college implosions. And the email read this way. My wife and I were just talking about how we hope the student... Debt bubble would hurry up and deflate. We have kids to put through school, and in the not too distant future, the sooner things settle out, the better. The current situation cannot continue. Tuitions are unsustainable. Student debt has fueled a bubble in the university system, and it's going to end, perhaps badly. Now, this is the response. This week, we may have gotten a glimpse of things to come. Just down the road from me, Sweet Briar College has decided to close up shop. Mark Cuban thinks it's the first of many colleges that will close. He goes on and says, and this is in the Business Insider, When you're 18 years old and you don't really understand all the nuances of what it's going to toss to pay something back, it was almost inevitable, Cuban said. A few years ago, Cuban bought the domain collegedebt.com which publishes live updates of how much college loan debt is held by students. The current total is just over $1.3 trillion, with a T, trillion dollars. This debt ultimately will outweigh most of the potential benefit you're getting from your college education, he said. What you thought you were going to be getting in quality of life is now being undermined by the debt that you've taken on to the point where there's almost no benefit in going to college anymore. Now, think about this. When I was in school, they had these charts. And I think they're historical actuarial charts, but I don't really know if they were just made up or not. But they'd say, if you were a high school graduate, and back then, just graduating high school was a big thing. If you were a high school graduate, you would make more money than a non-high school graduate by X percent. And let's just make up a number. They might have said you might make $40,000 a year. But if you had just one year of college, you would probably make like fifty thousand dollars a year. Now, if you had a two-year degree, right, some type of associate's degree, you'd probably make somewhere between sixty and seventy thousand. If you had a four-year college degree, you would make something like you know seventy to hundred thousand uh, dollars. And if you had a um, master's degree, you could make over a hundred thousand, a you At a doctoral you might make as much as two hundred thousand dollars. You know, and I think the numbers are a little skewed there because I'm just making that up all for uh, my own personal memory sake, which I probably should have looked it up for this article just to be closer to the truth. But the reality now is is that kids coming out of college with these stupid degrees that they have. Now remember people used to go to school and get degrees that mattered. Now kids are just going to school because parents are trying to get rid of them. They're trying to get them out of the house. And so they're sending kids that got bad grades to college. They're sending kids that are dumb as a rock to college. They're sending kids that are lazy as can be to college. They're sending kids that uh, have got earrings, tattoos, piercings, uh, wear their pants down around their knees so their butt hangs out. They're sending all these kinds of crazy kids to schools. And colleges are taking them because they need quotas and these kids are in there just creating havoc, having sex, taking drugs, and doing nothing to improve their lives. And yet, they're coming out with enough debt to keep them strapped for the rest of their life. My friends, the college system is about to implode.
0: Dell Wamsley on how to live the lifestyle.
1: What would the world have you to believe out there right now? You know, the world's got these sayings they want you to live by. Don't worry, be happy got an email the other day from a, a guy said my mother's 75 years old and she doesn't have very much money and she looks like she's gonna live for a long time what should I do you know I'm sitting there going I don't have an answer to that if your mother's gonna live to be a hundred years old and she has no money that's a problem so you may not want your mother to worry but she can't be happy you may not want to worry about your mother but you can't be happy with that situation You've got to go take action of some type, whether it's take care of your mother, move her in with you, you know, to lower her bills or find some way to invest her money with you safely where it won't be lost so you can build some income for her. whatever it is. If you just maintain the status quo of don't worry and be happy, your mother might run out of money. We'll come back with more of the Del Wamsley Radio Show.
0: You're listening to the Dell Wamsley Radio Show. Dell will be right
1: back with more life-changing principles
0: in just a few minutes.
1: The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Not because that's the way it's set up, but because of the knowledge. When put into action, knowledge is power. At Lifestyles Unlimited, we empower you to live the lifestyle of your dreams through passive real estate income. For over 30 years, our successful members have shared their knowledge through case studies, classes, and mentoring. Tap into that knowledge. Attend a free workshop online. Register now at lifestylesunlimitedworkshop.com.
0: Welcome back. Now, here's some more unconventional wisdom to set you free. From the man on a mission to retire America, one person at a time, Dal Wamsley.
1: Uh, the other day, in one of our shows, uh, We've got to ask the question, uh, what rules of thumb do you live by? And one of them that I brought up was that I've never purchased a home that costs more than I made in one year the, uh, the year that, that I purchased the home. And um, the concept was that's how you keep from buying too expensive of a home, right? Well, the lady responded to that with an email back. Um, but she went a different direction on it, okay, and so I'm going to share this with you because I think it's an interesting point, and it's one that we don't spend a lot of time on, but I think it's a relevant point. She says, I still live in my first starter home that I bought in 2009. It was a foreclosure in great shape that I paid 85000 for, and that is about how much money I made per year back then. One thing that I would like to mention that I never hear anyone talk about. I live in a small, middle-class neighborhood where my neighbors complain daily about how broke they are and are driving old, broken-down cars that are falling apart. Now, I have a rich friend, and when I visit their neighborhood, she says friends, I have rich friends also, and when I visit their neighborhoods, uh, they have bankers and doctors that kindly approach me in their expensive cars and introduce themselves. They sometimes even invite me over for dinner with their family. Whereas in my neighborhood, you see these tough guys walking around with their shirts off, their pants hanging down. So that motivates me to make more income to afford a nice big home that a normal middle class person cannot afford and for that I can live amongst successful, positive people in a safe environment. Now, I'm trying to to piece together in my mind you know what kind of a neighborhood she lives in for $85,000 houses. and But the, the bottom line is, is that what I've realized, and I've spoken about it some, but not a lot, but I'm going to go ahead and dive into it today, is that people that are more financially successful are definitely happier, and hence, definitely nicer people to be around. You go, oh boy, now now you've really jumped off the deep end. This is ridiculous. I'm a poor person and I'm a nice guy. Well, maybe. Maybe not. Because you think about it. Where is all the crime taking place? It takes place in low-end neighborhoods. Uh, where is all of the break-ins and where are all the shootings and the rapes? All that stuff happens in the lower socioeconomic brackets. Now, All of it is the wrong statement, so don't hold me out to that wrong statement. But a preponderance of it does. I have said for years, I said, look, every person I've ever met that was financially successful is easily approachable, and whether or not you have something stimulating or interesting for them to talk to you about is one thing. You know, you can go bend their ear, and if you go talk to them about stuff that They have no interest in whatsoever because it's not in their wheelhouse of either needs or desires. I can understand them giving you a colder shoulder, but they're still not unfriendly. Now, you walk up to a bunch of gangbangers uh, in a bad neighborhood, and I'll tell you what you're going to get. You're going to get some trouble, right? Because these people are not happy people. They're miserable people. If you go up and down the socioeconomic bracket, I'll tell you this. Let's just take middle class people that get up and go to work every day. I dread, and I will not take and go anywhere during rush hour, morning or afternoon, because it's a nightmare, right? And because of the fact that I don't have a job, I can go where I want to go. I can set my appointments up when I want to go on them, right? But even so, every once in a while, I'll get caught in traffic. And when you do, and people are in a hurry, and they're behind, they're late for something, they get upset. And so they want to cut in front of you, and they'll cut you off, and they'll act aggressively, and they're just ridiculous, and they won't look at you. And when they do, they throw up the infamous middle finger to you and so forth. And I have to tell you, I don't do any of that stuff. I just don't care. Because rich people don't have those problems. I'm very happy to let people cut in front of me because I'm in no hurry to get almost anywhere. And I've never seen someone drive up next to me in a limo and give me the infamous middle finger. I've just never had it happen. These guys will look at you, smile, go back to what they're doing, maybe wave at you if you wave at them. Uh, You know, you let somebody in, they wave back at you, hey, thanks a lot, friendly. But man, that's just not the case with all these unhappy people. Now, what I want to share with you is this. This is a long discussion, but I think a well-needed one for some people out there. Friends, life is a journey. It's not a destination. It's all about the life. It's not the money. It's the lifestyle. It's the quality of your life. It's the journey you get to take. And if you don't have a financial plan that works, your journey is miserable. We know that. And so what I'm saying to you is you need to change your plan. The plan that they gave you from youth doesn't work, isn't working, and never will work. right? And that's why you're unhappy. The reason that the lower socioeconomic people get in trouble is because they do bad things, they do wrong things, they make bad decisions because they have the wrong map, and quite honestly because they're so frustrated that they're just acting out. Now. All of us have those moments when we want to lose our mind and act out. And when I was young and dumb and poor, I did the same thing. Now, guys, I want you to understand something. It's very important for you to listen to me on the radio, and that is understand this. I grew up in Florissant, Missouri. That is one block from Ferguson, Missouri. I grew up in that neighborhood, folks. I know how unhappy those people are there. I understand that these people have nothing to live for in that neighborhood, and a riot is actually the most interesting thing they have come up in their life. It's a great opportunity to expel their frustration. It's a great opportunity to steal and riot and break things and get it out of their system because they got nothing else to live for. When I lived there, I got beat up on a regular basis. I had teeth knocked out, I had to have plastic surgery because someone threw a rock and split the side of my face open. I had my nose broken 11 times. So my friends, don't tell me about what it's like to be poor and live in a poor neighborhood. The difference between you and me is that I did something about it, and my parents didn't do something about it. Yeah, we took a job in another neighborhood, We took a job in another city. That was a good choice by my parent. But still, I had all that rage in me. I grew up in that neighborhood. I grew up with that rage and with that hatred of people. And I was able to get it out of my system over a period of time to realize that it was all wrong. Now you're telling me, well, it's not, you don't understand. I wear a hoodie and I get arrested and I get shot and I get beat up. No, I totally understand. If you wear a hoodie, you look like a gangbanger. You look like a thug. So now I'm going to tell you a story, my friend. And here's my story. I lived in a very affluent part of town in Houston. And on Christmas Eve, I went for a jog in a hoodie And just so happened, somebody robbed the bank, and this little, impotent, little, frustrated little freak of a guy called the cops and told them that I must have been the person that robbed the bank. Now, I had run by the bank during the bank robbery, and by the time the cops got there, I had circled and was coming back. So six cops came to take me down. Now, if I would have been like any other person from the hood, I would have started giving them lip. I would have tried to fight back. I would have denied having anything to do with it. I would have become a problem, and they would have beat my butt. They would have tasered me and pounded me and kicked me. And if I kept fighting, shoot me. But no, my friends. Christmas Eve, in an affluent part of town... A millionaire is taken down by six cops and stuck in the back of a police car for six hours while they investigate the crime, only to be let out six hours later with an apology. Oh my gosh, it wasn't you. My friends, you can beat the rap, but you can't beat the ride. Shut up, sit down, give up, and don't get killed. Don't get beat. That's what you need to learn if you're poor and miserable. I want to tie some strings together here from the last two segments, talking about the college education being a failure and a flop for our society, uh, and also talking about uh, growing up in impoverished neighborhoods, lower middle-class neighborhoods even, possibly. And I am going to tie this stuff together, because to have complained about them for two segments is of use is have no use if I can't offer up solutions. So let's go back to the college deal. Guys, gals, ladies, friends, Romans, and whatever. The bottom line is this, Uh, don't send your kid to college unless the kid has an idea what they want to become. Don't send your kid to college if he's already a mess up. It's a waste of time, it's a waste of your money. Do something better for them. Get them a job. Make them start developing some skill sets. Make them start developing some discipline. Uh, And then if they show some discipline and uh, the willingness to stick with something, then offer them the opportunity to go to college. But until they're willing to stick with something, to stick a kid that is a brainless wonder into a college is a waste of your time. Now, on the other hand, if, and this is a a big if, if you come from a family that is a problematic uh, deterrent in life, Uh, the idea is to get the kid out of that neighborhood. Let's talk about the second part of the segment now. You know, you're growing up in a bad town like that. To get a kid like that out of that neighborhood, to get him into school, whether it's on a sports scholarship or whatever, uh, that's a good thing. Because, you know, I grew up in this bad neighborhood. I grew up with parents. My mother was an alcoholic and a drug addict. My dad was a workaholic, right? So I came up with this mental construct that allowed me to survive all that. And I heard it somewhere, and I think it was from Dr. Wayne Dyer, I'm not sure exactly who, but I heard it somewhere which says, I am from them, but I am not of them, okay? Now, what does that mean? That means, yes, I am of their sperm and their cell, and yes, I did pop out of that womb, but I am not of them. Somehow, I got, who knows how, inside of the wrong family's womb. I have no idea because my brain does not connect to what these people are, what they did, what they believed in in any way, shape or form. I am of not them. I might have well been, you know, adopted. Uh, it's, it could have been, you know, I don't think I was, but it, it wouldn't bother me if I was, because I don't relate to them at all anyway, because I'm not a workaholic, I don't want to be a workaholic, because I'm not an alcoholic and drug addict to the point that my mother was where she laid on the couch all day long, every day for the rest of her life and did nothing for nearly 50 years, okay, that's a useless life. Somehow I got out of there and accomplished a lot of things and uh, had a lot of goals and did a lot of stuff. That only occurred because I separated myself from bad ideas. So if you're right now listening to this, heaven forbid you're in some bad city. You know, you're in a bad part of Chicago or a bad part of St. Louis or a bad part of Washington, D.C., but you're picking this up. And for some reason, you've got the desire to hear positivity in your life, and you're from, you know, East L.A. or whatever. Hey, guys, listen to me. I'm there for you. There is help. You can get out of those situations and you can make yourself better. You can read the books that will make you better. You can go places and hang around with people that will make you better. You just have to make that decision that you may be from that place, but you're not of that place. You are not that existence. Now, let's go the other direction. I had a friend that was an investor with me when I first started. He was a dentist. One of the greatest men I've ever met in my life he had the ethics of he had the greatest ethics i had ever met he was highly intelligent and yet he was fun great guy loving had a super family and he perpetuated the super family and this gentleman i remember i uh, was a dentist made great money had a good money saved up was and then one day he cut his finger off working with a chainsaw in the backyard and so He thought he was gonna lose his career as a dentist. He could not do oral surgery anymore. So he decided to invest with me to make some money to be able to support his family. Okay, we we did okay, we made some money for him. But that wasn't really the important part. What was really important was what I got out of the relationship, uh, which was not money. Uh, I did make money in the relationship and so did he, but I got something. I got to see how a man, a real man raises a family. Not a man who leaves his kids in the dust, comes in, supplies the little sperm, then leaves. Not a man that beats his kids up. Not a man that doesn't care about what goes on. This was a man's man. This guy was at every one of his kids' events. He spent massive amounts of time framing their belief system and their ethics and By that factor, the children had the desire to grow up to be as successful as he was, and one of them wanted to be a doctor, and the other one wanted to be a dentist. Well, these children went to college, but not only did they just go to college, they completed college at a very high level of accomplishment, met their spouses-to-be in college, which were also in the medical field, So you had, again, mirroring values, matched-up mirroring values of success on both sides of that marriage, right? And they went ahead and got married and became highly successful kids. Now, I looked at that and I go, man, I couldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole and how to be a father like that, how to raise a family like that. The mother and father had been together since high school, and the wife... Who had gotten educated to become a teacher taught at a very, very low level uh, as a teacher to support him going all the way through med school. She worked for 20 years to get him through college and to help set up his practice as a dentist to where their family was financially successful. And then finally, he took on the financial burden and then she did something else. And I don't remember what it was she did. She's a wonderful lady. But the point I'm making to you is here is where the American dream of school and success and all that worked out. But the point I'm making to you is it wasn't college that made these kids successful. It was the family that made these kids successful. And the problem in the social low socioeconomic brackets, is not that these people don't have money. It's that they don't have morals, values, dreams, and goals. My friends, it's not the destination, it's the journey. But remember, it's not the money, it's the lifestyle. See you tomorrow.